Midwest Crime Files is a true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss adult themes and go over the details of heinous crimes and how they were committed. Viewer discretion is advised. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. This week's story brings us to the small southern Illinois town of Mascuda. It seems like we say that at least once a month. The small town of southern Illinois. Small town in southern Illinois. Well, that's basically what southern Illinois is. It's a bunch of small towns. And Mascuda is um, a little bit different than a lot of the towns we cover, though, because Mascuda is right next to Scott Air Force Base. Yep, and Scott, if you're not in the know, is one of... It's a very important military base, our Air Force Base in the United States. Um, and a lot of the people that surround Scott and in like the Mascuda area, Metro East area, are affiliated with Scott. Absolutely. And even going back to the 1960s um, and before, Muscoota High School always did a prom at the end of the year in the spring. Now, before COVID, I mean, most high schools do prom. Prom is a big deal. Before COVID sort of changed everything, it, it was basically a rite of passage and, you know, a very, very big deal to teenagers and high school students. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and we us having teenagers, they kind of missed out on... Well, I guess not really the prom this year, but like homecoming and stuff like that, so. Yes, COVID has not been friendly to our children, that's for sure. But in general, you know, prom has always been a big deal, and that was also the case in 1969 when the Mascuta High School put on their prom. Um, The theme for the prom was Moonlight and Roses, and it seemed like the dance went through and it was just a wonderful time. Everybody had a great time. And then after prom is when things took a turn for the worse. And it ended up being a prom night that the town of Mascuda will never forget. This is the story of the Mascuda prom night murders. Michael Morrison was born November 9th, 1950 to William Morrison and his wife, Anna. William was a member of the United States Air Force and the Morrison family, like most military families, they moved around a lot because of the military. And yeah, it's being a military bread, I can tell you. It's about every two to four years you're picking up and moving around. And it's it's a fun life, but it's not it's not the greatest when you're young. The Morrison family had five children and Mike was the second oldest. And in the mid nineteen sixties, the family found themselves stationed at Scott Air Force Base just outside of Mascuda. So they decided to uh, buy a house in Mascuda and send their kids to Mascuda High School. Deborah Means was born in 1953, and her father was also in the Air Force and stationed at Scott Air Force Base. In the 1960s, Deborah was described at, by friends as being vivacious and spunky. She started dating Michael in high school. Mike was two grades ahead of her. Um, She was a sophomore and he a senior in 1969. Mike was on track to graduate as co-valedictorian of his senior class and he was known to be a gifted athlete. 
They were kind of the all-American couple, if you will. Yeah, it's probably one of those couples that you look at and like that just makes me sick. Look at how look at how fit he is and how cute she is. Blech. <laughs> so naturally, they decided to go to prom together. They attended the prom on May 3rd of 1969 along with a group of their friends. The Moonlight and Roses theme it must have been very romantic. Like, they don't have themes like that anymore, I don't think. Their themes are um, a little, I don't know. Like, I think one of our homecomings, we had, like, Rodeo or Wild we West. Had, or... We had a night in time. A night spelled K-N-I-G-H-T because that was our mascot. 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 And believe me, every prom was a night in the trot, like a night in the Caribbean. It's bleh. I hated proms. I don't even remember our prom themes, but I would have probably liked this theme better. I don't know. It sounds very nice. Um, so, you know, the couple, they go to the dance, and a lot of people that knew them said they were very much in love. After the dance, the couple headed out to a rural area outside of Mascuda with a group of their friends. Um, and that was common then. Like, this is before post-prom, you know, where they do the lock-ins and, you know, they try to encourage as many who, kids as they can to stay. You, who did you go to prom with? Every prom I went to ended up at Carlisle Lake in one of the campgrounds. Underage drinking intense. Well, that happens too. But I'm saying, a lot of high schools, they do the lock-ins, you know, that aren't mandatory, but they encourage it. And they give away prizes and they have all this fun stuff and they try to... You know, keep the kids safe. And this was before all of that. So, I mean, it was... This is you know, when problems were fun. <laughs> probably more along um, the lines of what Chris is describing. You know, where basically you went out and you partied. Yeah, you go out to the middle of the cornfield. Wake up in the morning when the sun hits you. Oh, boy. They were the first of their friends to leave the party in the wee morning hours of May 4th, 1969. And when they left that party, that was the last time anyone saw Mike and Debbie alive. Mike's brother, Ed Morrison, wrote a book about the fateful night in May of 69. And it's entitled Bad Moon Rising, The Prom Night Murders Memoir. And it is one of the primary references for this um, podcast and in, in this blog um, post. So I highly, highly recommend his book. And um, if you stay tuned until the end of this episode, we're actually going to make an announcement that you might find very interesting in regards to how you can get a copy of his book. It's a great read, uh, highly recommended. And you can get it anywhere you buy books. So he wrote this book several years after his brother's death. And he remembers the night, or should I say the morning, that um, Mike didn't come home. And he says, you know, his mother was frantic. And, you know, because it was prom night and kids go out and they drink and they party and they do these kind of things, like... It's every parent during, like, I'm sure when our kids go to prom the for, for the first time, we're going to be all wigged out until they're safe at home. You know, it's it's that whole parent, you know, parent parental intuition, I guess. Right. So, I mean, Mike, you know, like we said, 
he was drinking, um, according to Ed's book, you know, he had been drinking that night, which is not uncommon at all. And it was possible that maybe he got in a car wreck or something like that. Um, and it was odd because Ed says that his mother actually said she had a dream that Mike died in a car accident. You know, but again, it's prom night. People are going out partying. It's not uncommon for kids to be late coming home. Um, but by the afternoon on that Sunday, neither Mike or Debbie had returned home. And now it's getting a little concerning. Mother's intuition told Anna Morrison that her son was gone. The police were called after the Morrison and Mean families failed to locate their children on their own. They called friends, they called relatives, they went out searching, um, but they couldn't find them. And the police's initial response was they probably ran off and got married. And, you know, young love, especially back in the 60s. You know, it's I a mean, little more common to get married I mean, very young yeah, at how, that age. How many of how many grandparents or parents do we have that were young loves in high school and they married young? You know, nineteen, twenty years old. You know, and that's that's kind of the little gap in the ages where the, like, that's where it was still common, but it was kind of starting to fade away. So you yeah. know, the police at this time had yeah, you know, yeah, they probably went to go elope. So despite the suspicion that they had maybe run off. Um, the search was on for the couple. The Morrison family vehicle, which is what Mike had been driving that night, was found abandoned on the side of the road with the doors open. But there was no indication of where Mike and Debbie were. On May 5th, the search continued and someone flying over the rural area where the couple were last seen just south of Mascuda spotted something that he believed to be a body. Police and investigators rushed to the area and near an abandoned strip mine, the bodies of 18-year-old Michael Morrison and 15-year-old Deborah Means were found deceased. Michael Means was found fully clothed with gunshots to his head. Deborah was found about 30 feet away from Michael. She was nude. She was gagged with her own underwear. Her hands and her feet were bound with clothesline, which was also around her neck. Her body had been mutilated and showed signs of possible and likely sexual assault. But her cause of death was strangulation. Of course, they were both ruled homicides. Yeah. The deaths were shocking to the small town of Mascuda, and the fear would not dissipate as long as a killer remained on the loose. I mean, I can't imagine a town where, you know, especially at that time, you know, was so safe and you never imagined. Right. And now you don't know why these especially, people were killed. You Who know, did it? Especially the high school sweethearts, you know, the, the valedictorian that's good at track, you know, the, the, the athlete, and then the little, the little cutesy, little spunky, little, you know, like... And I don't remember if she was a cheerleader or not, but they very much looked like the star basketball player and the cute little cheerleader. Right. You know. Um, so, you know, what happened to them? Nobody knew, and it was just shocking and terrifying. The investigation was put into high gear to look for a suspect. Two people would report possible clues that would lead to the identity of the perpetrator. First... 
police in East St. Louis pulled over a speeder. And when they pulled over the speeder, it was a young man, and he told a story that just made the police officer's jaw drop. He had heard about the murders in Mascuda, and he was very rattled and nervous because of an experience he had less than two weeks before the murders. He told police that he had been attending a dance at the American Legion Hall in Breeze, which is maybe 20 minutes from Mascuda. Right. In April. And a girl that he was hanging out with was having trouble with her car. So the two left to go check out the car, you know, drive around a little, see if they could figure out what was going on. They were driving northeast of Breeze near Shoal Creek when the couple were forced off the road by another vehicle. The person who ran them off the road was a man in his 30s. And once he had them off the road, he forced the 18-year-old boy into the trunk of the car by gunpoint. The boy could hear the girl, who was approximately 16 years old, being violently raped while he was inside the trunk. The man then let the boy out of the trunk and forced them to perform sexual acts on each other while he took pictures. He then threatened them that he would come back and kill them if they reported it. The couple returned to the American Legion Hall after this traumatizing event, and um, they did tell people that what happened. So there was an immediate outcry witness. Right. Police suspected that the man that was responsible for this rape and breeze was most likely also responsible for the rape of Debbie and the murders of Michael and Debbie. They didn't know who he was, though, and that's a problem. Until a man who runs a mobile home court in Shiloh came forward about one of his employees. The employee, Bill Nickerson, showed up to work on Monday, May 5th with scratches all over him and a busted lip. He looked like he had been in a fight. And adding to the suspicion was the fact that the man left the area just four days after the murder claiming that a family member had died. Now, normally that really wouldn't seem odd. He wasn't from Southern Illinois, so I mean, okay. But leaving town would be odd because Bill Dickerson didn't have a phone. And this is before cell phones and stuff. So he didn't have a phone and it just didn't make sense. Like who would have gotten a hold of him and how would they have gotten a hold of him? None of it made sense. And at this time, a phone call was received at the St. Clair County Sheriff's Office, and I'm going to let Chris read the quote of what the caller said. He, he quoted, I am the one who killed them, and I will do it again. I was bit around the mouth area, end quote. Um, Debbie's mother also received a letter in her mailbox addressed to the murdered girl's mother, the letter was immediately given to authorities because it described this crime in so much detail. It had to have been written by the killer. And it seems like the motive was really to inflict more pain on the family and to what torture the family. What a sick twisted person. Yes. Inside the envelope with the letter are Mike's ID cards. So, obviously... It's from right. the killer. And he probably had Debbie's ID cards, too. That's probably how he knew where, you know, knew where to send the letter. Um, 
I'm not going to share the letter in its entirety because it's disgusting, quite frankly, and it's very disturbing. It describes the rape of Debbie in graphic detail. He does say in the letter that Debbie bit his lip, causing the wound on his lip. Now, I remember Bill Nickerson had the busted lip. After receiving the tip from Bill Nickerson's boss and hearing the story about the rape in Breeze, authorities tried to find Bill Nickerson. They eventually learned that that wasn't even his real name. His real name was Marshall Wayne Stauffer. His boss also learned that Stauffer had purchased items shortly before the murder using a co-worker's name and charging it to the company. These items, wouldn't you know it, included rope and tape. They searched the trailer home and they found some cigarette butts with blood on the mouthpieces, you know, from that busted lip. Marshall Wayne Stauffer, let's talk about him a little bit. So he was born in Dixon, Illinois in 1930. As a teenager, he was arrested for burglary and soon after receiving probation on those charges, he was arrested in Alabama after he stole a car. He was then sentenced to a year in an Alabama prison, but he escapes. I mean, it's just insane. He was again apprehended, and this time he was sentenced to five years for his Illinois burglary charge as he had violated his probation. He was sent to Pontiac State Prison, and he served his time. After he got out of prison, Stauffer enlisted in the United States Air Force, which I didn't even think you could enlist in the Air Force if you were a felon. Uh, they do right, make some exceptions, like certain felonies or certain charges that can be wavered. Um, and you never heard of people making the plea, oh, you can either go to jail or go like join the military? I guess not. But anyway, it didn't really matter because he went AWOL. <laughs> Right after he completed basic training. So he was sentenced to five years probation and, of course, dishonorably discharged. However, he stole another car while on probation and he was sentenced to five years in federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, it's which. Leavenworth. Is, from what I understand, that's one of the bad ones. Yeah, it's a maximum security prison for the military. Yeah, so he was sentenced to five years there, and then after getting out of prison, he just continues this, like, life of crime. He was just a delinquent person, period. But his crime started to grow in violence and sexual tones. He was arrested in 1958 for lewd acts in Chicago. He was charged for theft by false pretenses in California shortly after that. And for more fraudulent crimes in Illinois in 1960. So he just like bounced around like West Coast to Midwest. Like he was just a like a, a country bound. Yes, criminal. just uh, like a nomad causing problems everywhere he went. Well, and I guess like, you know, put it back like this is the late 50s, early 60s. So we don't have. Like, the computer databases that we have then. So, I guess, I mean, back then, I guess it would make sense. Oh, I, you know, I'm just going to go as far away from here as possible. Where nobody knows my Where name. Nobody, exactly. Well, Stauffer was a career criminal, and he was becoming a master manipulator. He was serving time in the early 1960s for forgery in Los Angeles, California, when once again, he escaped. He was caught again and sent to Folsom Prison for... Is, isn't a, the, very odd sentence. Isn't that 
the Johnny Cash, the yes. Folsom Prison Blues or whatever? It sure is. Yeah. Maximum Security Prison in California. It's one of the bad ones, too. So this is his very odd sentence, okay? So this was for his after his prison escape. He was sentenced to one year to life in prison. Let me guess. Model behavior got him out early. One year to life. First of all, what the hell? <laughs> That's the weirdest. Like, one year would be okay, but life would be okay. What? Well, I guess at this point they think, oh, he's a career criminal. And if he doesn't change his ways, well, we got him for good. And I mean, know. hell, this is what? His second time escaping prison? Yeah. You know? So, sure, you're either here for one year or the rest of your life. You, It's like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, he ends up getting released from Folsom in 1965. By the end of May in 1969, warrants were issued for Marshall Wayne Stauffer for the rape and kidnapping incident in Breeze that April. The murders of Mike and Debbie after prom, originally they pressed charges and they had a warrant out for his arrest for the murders as well. He was on the run, but he eventually went back to his former employer in California to try to get a job. The employer recognized him, knew he was wanted, and notified authorities. It would turn out that Stauffer was also wanted for a similar rape case in Hannibal, Missouri, and a kidnapping in Wichita, Kansas. In September of 1969, he was questioned in the murder of newlyweds Robert and Bobby Swanson, also from Missouri. In the fall of 1969, Stauffer suddenly changed his plea in the Clinton County rape and armed robbery case to guilty. I wonder, now I wonder why he, like, this is a true question, like, why, I wonder why he did it. Like, was the sentencing worse, like, the sentencing parameters worse in Kansas, or in Missouri and Kansas, I wonder? Like, was it death penalty more given like given away like at a moment's notice there in illinois it was a little bit kind of tight guarded because i know like illinois had the death penalty back then right so what would like are is he trying to find the state that has the lesser sentences well just wait because we're gonna get to the motive behind this plea and it's going to piss you off so he changes it to guilty and he's sentenced to 50 to 52 years in rape, uh, in prison for the rape and 30 to 50 years for the armed robbery. The sentences are to run concurrently. Uh, we hate that word concurrently. <laughs> so, or at least I do. I don't know about Gina, but I don't like it. He's off the streets and. You know, seemingly he was in his 30s, I believe, at this point in time, late 30s. So 50 years, probably more or less the rest of his life in prison or so they thought. So St. Clair County District Attorney uh, decides that they are going to drop the murder charges against How Stauffer. In the holy fuck. I'm sorry, audience. You know, I try to keep it like somewhat clean for you. But what in the fuck are you thinking? Oh, he's in jail. He's the... We got him. We're so, just going to put him away. Those two people you killed, let's not worry about that. Yeah, like, not, don't let's don't give any fucking justice to the families that died. So, 
obviously the community in Mascuda was furious with this decision. Why were they not going to try Marshall Wayne Stauffer for the murders of Mike and Debbie? A town hall meeting was held with Robert Rice, the prosecutor, in which he told residents, quote, the dismissal was part of a plea which included a guilty plea on the Clinton County charges, oh, end quote. bullshit. So, murder charges, you look at death penalty. Rape and robbery, not so much death penalty. So that is my thought process, is he agreed to take that plea to get those murder charges off of him so yeah. he wouldn't have to worry about the death Well, sentence. if I was facing that kind of shit, too, that's what I'd be thinking, too. Um, Robert Rice also said that the murder case lacked evidence, but a grand jury had found sufficient evidence to indict Marshall Wayne Stauffer on those charges. So, whatever. I, I, I'm reading what's, I told you you were going to be pissed. I'm reading what's coming up, so... Yeah. Um, go ahead. Well, it just gets worse. So not only did Mike and Debbie's families not get the justice they needed, but to the absolute horror of both the Breeze and Mascuda communities, Stauffer was released from prison in 1990 after serving 21 years. I got to keep calm because we enjoy doing this podcast. But like... I this told a, you this was gonna this is piss a, you off. Once again, this is another case of like it has to be of model like model prisoner behavior because he was sentenced to what thirty to fifty years. Yeah, and he gets out in twenty one. Yeah, like what the hell is the point of bare minimum uh, of minimum sentencing then? Like, if you're gonna do model behavior, then extend the sentence, like make the sentences bigger, and make it a firm that you have to at least serve this. Well, you would think if it's third, like, this is just my mind. I know this is not how the criminal justice system works, but, you know, you would think if you're sentenced to 30 to 50 years, that means you're eligible for parole for the first time at 30 years. But that's not how our system works. That's so, like... If you're sentenced to 10 to 15 years, you're probably eligible for parole by the time you're in two and a half, three years. Which is, like, I... Fucking bullshit. Well, I'm glad Illinois kept the track record of being stupid. Since the 60s. Well, fear in the communities was high. Um, people feared for the safety of young women and young men. Everywhere this psychopath could possibly be. Stauffer had been suspected in several Lover's Lane type of murders. What, the, what does that actually mean? So, he had been suspected of murders of several different couples that kind of fit his M.O. as far as, like, so, the rape in Breeze and then Debbie and Michael's murder. You okay. know, he would get them alone. Normally, uh, he okay. would have... Okay, I get it now. So the guy of, in the trunk raped the girl. Okay. I see. I saw that, and I was like, Lover's Lane. Like, I, it... Thank you for the context. And by 1990, he was still young enough to continue yeah, this so crap. Yeah, so he's what... 21 plus 30. Well, he was born in 1930, so he would have been 60. Yeah, so I mean, that's... Now he's just a pervy old man. Or right. A, like a psychopath... Like, not pervy. I'm sorry. Pervy is peeping Tom. This is psychopath... Like, a psychopath old man. Definitely. Within two years of his release, Stauffer was once again arrested for three violent rapes occurring in Idaho, Nevada, and Oregon. This time, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. So, this is where I get pissed off. 
within two years, two years of his release, he was arrested for th- like three more in. Th- yeah, he was arrested for three more violent rapes in three different damn states. Right. So, what kind of recourse goes back to the St. Clair County, like? Or the Illinois Parole Board. Fucking idiots that put, like, that let him out. Like, you had him on charges of rape and sexual assault and all that stuff. And if they had tried him for murder, if he probably to, would have gotten convicted. And had, I don't care if the sentence is concurrent. You, at, you, know, you at that time, tack on more. You know, yeah. like, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're only going to get 30 to 50 because you raped and because <laughs> you raped somebody. Oh, what's not that bad? Oh, it is. You know, and I I say that I, he's see, being sarcastic. Like sarcasm does not flow through a podcast very well. <laughs> but so, what kind of recourse then do the family or do the victims of those three rapes have against the state of Illinois? Absolutely right. fucking nothing. Well, and if he had been charged, even if they didn't go after the death penalty, even if they went for life on the murder charges, they could have right. prevented that. Right, and that's well, and that's what the, the thing that pisses me off so much is that you knew he was a career. We have evidence of being a career offender. Mm-hmm. Evidence that the offenses have become more violent and more deviant in nature. Actual evidence that he performed a rape, and with the the breeze rape, mm-hmm. and a robbery, and enough evidence that the grand jury was like could indict him on murder, and he was suspected in several other murders that they didn't have the evidence to for. Prove. So like, but, this is but, probably a serial killer, and they let him out like, after twenty years. We need that. Like I know that this is from the sixties. And 70s. It still happens today, though. But we need to, like, like, and I'm all, like, lazy. Even, even the upset. dogs get mad at this point. We have to start rethinking, like, the sentencing laws and stuff like that. You're right, Leah, we do. For the, for the simple fact that we are continually letting career criminals with violent pasts our violent tendencies out early because they're good. Well, and that's the thing, too. Like, they talked about him being, like, in Ed Morrison's book, they talk about him being a, quote, model prisoner once again. It's like, okay, but this man has done nothing but be a criminal his entire life. So why in the world do they think it was going to be any different now? You know, and I just think with all of his priors and escaping from prison, not once, but twice, you know, he he went AWOL from the army. He had several, several forgery, theft charges, um, just like the multitude of his priors. How in the world did he get what made What made you think that he was going to be a model citizen? Right. Like, and this is, once again, we were like, if you didn't listen to our podcast last week... Go listen to it because we're having the same deja vu conversation that we had from that one mm-hmm. about the whole model citizen thing is just a show. It's manipulation. It's, it's a show, and the like. If I wanted to, I could be a good boy for ten years, right? And then on that eleventh year, once you let me out, ha ha, suckers! I'm flipping the bird, like. But yeah, and that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, wouldn't. 
it's just, it's unfortunate and it's sad and it could have prevented so many crimes if he had just been charged to begin with, with Mike and Debbie's murders. Yeah, and that's... Well, and, I shouldn't say charged. He was charged. If the charges weren't dropped, if they tried and that's, him. Well, and that's the thing. Like, the family never got closure. They never got closure. They know who did it. Assuming they... Assu- right. They assume to know who did it. Got... Re- received letters from this prick. Yeah. Taunting them. Well, I, and apparently he continued to do that even while in prison. You know, like... There was no closure at all for this family. Mm-mm. Like two lives taken well before their like well before they even started. Yeah. And there was not a damn thing done about it. Because they wanted to because they wanted to get him on the rape charges, which they had him dead to rights anyway. Yeah. Like what like why offer a deal? Like what was the reasoning to what was the reasoning? So they can go to tr- like so it could wouldn't have to go to trial and they'd have to prove this. Like, we're going on down the rabbit hole again. We are. But this but is one that's of those, okay. But this is one of those things where, okay, I've got you on two charges. Normally, the fucking murder charge is Trump's trumps everything. everything. Else. Like, God, have you not watched, like, Bad Boys? Like, I mean, if they <laughs> had taken the death penalty off the table, if he agreed to plead guilty to the murder charge and, and dismissed and- the rape charge... That would have been more acceptable. You know, I, I just... I, it just still, kills nothing, me. How do you let someone away with murder? Nothing, like... And that's where I disagree with you. None of that is acceptable. You did every single one of these crimes. You need to fucking have your comeuppance for every single one of the crimes you did. I don't believe in the whole, oh, well, we'll give you a lenient deal on this one. Or, well, oh, we'll get rid of this charge if you plead to these ones. Like, that's not how... Like, no, you did all that shit. But that's how the criminal justice system Which works. Which is bullshit. And, like, it's one of those things that pisses me off because you guys are letting these people walk with nothing. With a slap on the damn wrist and that's it. Well, and if they had thought about seeking the death penalty, that would possibly be a motive because death penalty cases are extremely expensive. And so, you know, that thought crossed my mind, too, like... Did they think that maybe if they didn't have to try them, St. Clair County would save themselves a little money and let Clinton County try them? Well, but that's still bullshit. Oh, I don't don't disagree. I'm just saying it's a possibility. To keep somebody like that... Okay, let's say you go for the death penalty. You you get it. Then you got to go through the appeal process. How long does the fucking appeal process take for death penalty? For fucking ever. Yes. Forever. The appeal process, that's another thing. Like, I, all those states that have... Like, I think the appeals should be quicker. And, like, let's go. Like, don't let people sit on death row for freaking 50, 60 years. But in this case, guess what? If he was getting an appeal for... Like, if he was trying to get an appeal for his death sentence, he would have been still been in fucking jail. 20, like, past the 20 years. Well, I'm sure that if he thought he was going to to have the death penalty he would have made a plea for the life sentence yeah like, i think he was just trying to avoid a death penalty like i don't i don't believe like this is just me speaking i don't know how gina feels i don't know how our listeners feel i don't believe there should be plea deals when there's murder rape like child like child abuse like 
those are like the three the three hell no's. Well, like those but, are the those are the violent crimes where I don't give a shit what happens to you. Well, let's go let's rewind though for a minute. Because a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times when they do make these plea deals, they're cases where maybe they're a little iffy. So it's can we get them to plea to second degree instead of first degree and maybe they plead to second degree murder and they go away for 50 60 years or they plead to first degree and we take the death penalty off the table then we save first of all we save taxpayer expense but also we save the risk of putting the families and the victims through trials which rape trials in particular that's a big thing very traumatizing and hard and second you know do we risk a maybe not rock solid case and they get off completely? I understand that, but like let's break that down. Okay, so like the rape victims. Would that rape victim rather have that person in jail longer or have them have the option the ability to get out sooner? That rape victim, no matter what, like I I'm gonna sound like a dick. Well, I, here's the thing, though. There's a lot, especially when it comes to sexual assaults, there are a lot of victims that they don't even report it because they don't want to have to relive it. So the thought of going to trial sometimes is harder on that victim. So do I think there should be plea deals possible? Yes. Do I think that the victims, and in the case of a murder, obviously, it would be the victim's families, should have say-so in that? Absolutely. And that's so what then, I think irritates me, is they didn't even talk to Mike and Debbie's family about this arrangement. It was just done. So, once again, like, we're diving down a rabbit hole. I understand that, like, with rape victims, they don't want to face the accuser. They don't want to talk about it. So why can't we... In, the modern day, like I don't like I can't speak for anything past, you know, our where we are now with technology. Why can't a rape victim give testimony by themselves with let's say like a counselor or support person there with them? Like the like like we can we have Zoom meetings. It's still traumatizing though. I understand. Like, but that's I, I I don't think that we but, should be forcing... I mean, so by that aspect, should we be forcing them if they choose not to testify? Because there are some instances where if they don't testify, there's no case. So if they can get a plea deal... So why can't we get more support for those victims then? Oh, I don't disagree with you on that at like, all. But this is the reality of the world we're living like, in. And not to mention... I like, mean, instead of... like, And I like... Listeners, I know we've we've dived down a rabbit we hole. We live in a society, though, too, that blames the victim. But I think that's and switching a little bit. It, I, I honestly think like this whole like as much as I the woke culture is okay. But we're talking historically. Historically, especially with sexual assault, the victim is blamed all the time, all the time. I understand that. You know, and, and I am not going to force someone that's already been through hell to then relive that in front of a bunch of people. So, you're willing to let a rapist walk because they the only evidence is, like, some 
I, I can't say DNA because that's pretty much. Well, know. it's not really about me being willing to do it. It's about. I don't um, think well, we should force a victim to testify if they I don't think, want to. But I think there needs to be things in place that allow a victim to get support before they go, before they make that decision. Well, you know, absolutely. Like, I, like agree. I would, I would love if our like, our like my tax dollars went to counseling for women that were abused. But sexually, physically, whatever. So they could get to the point where they are comfortable enough with what happened or, you know, where they can be like, fuck you, dude. You have no power over me. This is what happened. Unfortunately, though, that's not well, we need to where a lot of people are. We need to fucking change it. Well, and even if you gave resources, not everybody's going to be there. So, I mean, I understand the reason for plea, but I don't understand the reason for this particular situation with Mike and Debbie. Like, they should have at least tried it. Let a jury decide. I mean, yeah, he's going away for 50 years. That's great. So what's the harm if they do say there's not enough evidence? The only thing I can think of is a financial consequence. You know? Because he was going to have this sentence in Breeze whether or not they tried him or not. So why didn't they just try him? And if they lose it, then they lose it. If they don't lose it, then he gets more time or the death penalty or life or whatever. Right. If it wasn't a strong case, probably not go for the death penalty. But they didn't even try. No, we they didn't even try. And it, and just, it just kills me. But, I mean, Marshall Wayne Stauffer's reign of terror finally ended in 2002 when he died in prison at the age of 71. He had lived a majority of his life behind bars or bouncing in and out from behind bars, causing problems. And I just think that if he had been tried for these murders, perhaps the atrocities he committed after his release could have been prevented. He was a monster, a predator. He preyed on young people. He destroyed the lives along the way. Just a disgusting excuse for a human being. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And listeners, we apologize. We took a little deep dive down there for about 15 minutes. (laughs) But that's what you get when, like, this is the kind of stuff that I think needs to be talked about. Exactly. You know, like, so many people are scared. Or not scared, but think of our justice system as, oh, it's fine. But then you look at cases like this, the cases that we had last week, where it's just like, how the hell... Did this happen? Right. How did the, how did they allow the did anyone allow this to happen? And like I just I just don't understand why they didn't try him. They had nothing to lose except money. Right. And that's what I don't get. So my just my thought process here, the motive had to be they didn't want to spend the money to try him. Right. Because I don't see what other they didn't have anything else to lose. Right. You know? Um, As promised, though, I told you guys all to hang out till the end of the episode. We would have an announcement. So um, whenever this episode ends, um, when it gets posted, it's going to be posted on Facebook as well. But we are having another giveaway contest. And this one is very, very special. Um, This is for an autographed copy of Ed Morrison's book, Bad Moon Rising, The Prom Night murders memoir which he wrote with his wife mindy um he is mike morrison's brother and he wrote the story which was my 
primary reference yeah, source. Yeah, it was pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, I mean she... there are some other articles, and you can see all of those um, on our webpage. But this was our my primary reference, and Ed has been so so kind to agree to give away a signed copy of his book. Um, to one listener. So what we'd like you to do is go on our Facebook page and um, there will be a, a post there about the contest and we just ask that you comment and make sure that you are um, a follower on the Facebook page and we will pick one winner at random and we'll announce that winner um, on Friday at about... 5, 6 p.m. Whenever we get off work. <laughs> we're, we're not going to lie. Like like we said this past, this is not our job. We just like doing it. So Friday, July 16th at about 5 or 6 <laughs> between, p.m. Between 5, five to question mark. <laughs> uh, between 5 and 6. We'll announce a winner. Um, and that winner, like I said, will get a copy of the book Bad Moon Rising um, by Ed Morrison. And I also wanted to let you guys know, um, for those who don't win the book but would still like to have a copy, um, Ed donates all the proceeds of this book to the Deborah Means and Michael Morrison Scholarship Fund at Mascuda High School. So all the proceeds are going to a great cause. So I highly, highly recommend you read it. He does go into so much more detail about the ridiculousness that is Marshall Wayne Stauffer and the serious miscarriage of justice in this case. Um, it's a very good read. I think you'll really enjoy it. And um, good luck to you in the contest. For more information um, about our references, a list of references and some pictures, visit us at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. And make sure you also like and follow us on Facebook. And as I told you last week, season two is moving straight on ahead and it is going to be a doozy. Next week's case is no exception to that. It will blow your mind just as I think the last two have and you will still be questioning the criminal justice system, I promise you. So. Um, have a good week, and we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.